Women Plus communities have rapidly grown their share of wealth over the last generation, but gaps remain. Today, a look at the rise of women business investors on this episode of Off the Sidelines. Welcome back to Season 2, Episode 8 of Off the Sidelines, your guide to becoming a better investor. The world needs a new generation of great companies, and we need your help. I am your host. I am Chris Wink, the co-founder and CEO of Technically, a network of local tech economy news sites. Off the Sidelines, it's sponsored by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. They want to strengthen the ecosystem for women founders and advance inclusive capital. That includes diversifying the pipeline of investors and supporters. Today, women control about one-third of the world's wealth. It is a total that is growing faster than a lot of other groups. But surveys show comfort among women in managing that wealth isn't growing as fast. That's today's episode. How can more women actively invest their wealth? To do that, I am joined by Technically's lead Philly reporter, Paige Gross. Hey there, Paige. Hi, Chris. So Paige, you had a conversation that will serve as the focus of this episode. Help set us up. Sure. So first, I want to make it clear that there's two very different experiences happening here. You know, millions of Americans, proportionally women of color and other people of color, are confronting the worst of this pandemic and economic shock. But then there's others, though, who are seeing their stocks surging and many private software and digital companies are thriving. Right. So for this episode, we are talking about that latter group, the, the women who are in the position to think about managing a portfolio of wealth. Yeah, and it's interesting because there's a real hope that these women who are creating or inheriting wealth and who will take a more active role in that wealth might plan for a more equitable future moving forward. And that active role can mean a lot of things outside. Like that can be with a financial advisor. You could pick an index fund or individual stocks that fit their own you know, preferences and worldview. You could pick a bunch of publicly traded companies that are really adapting for climate change. But For today's purposes, it's not what we're talking about. We're talking about private market business investing. For simplicity, can women who have the financial security to take on more risk, can they get involved in shaping the kinds of founders and early stage startups that exist? Yeah, and that was the setup of a live recording that technically hosted with Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. And to understand how more women can take an active role in business investing, I had a conversation with two women who are active in early stage company investing. And the stakes are real. By 2030, women are going to control about two-thirds of wealth in this country. And women controlling wealth is a very good thing because women like to invest in impact and diversity and all sorts of things. And that has downstream effects. That's Jenny Abramson. She's the founder and managing partner of Rethink Impact, the largest U.S.-based impact VC firm with a gender lens that invests in female leaders using tech to solve the world's biggest problems. Jenny has also been named one of Entrepreneur Magazine's most powerful women. And I also spoke with this investor. So it's now been about 10 years I've been investing, and I feel like I'm back in the court with teammates every time I sit by side by side with founders through the ups and downs that they're having on their journeys and It's definitely been um, a year for doing that. That's our second guest, Amy Griffin, who's the founding partner of G9 Ventures. G9 is an early stage fund focused on supporting companies that empower consumers to live, look, and feel better. They've worked with companies like Bumble and Everlane. Before we jump into our conversation with Jenny and Amy, there's one other voice you should hear from. Jamie Sears leads community affairs and corporate social responsibility for UBS Americas, which Full disclosure, sponsors Project Entrepreneur, the underwriter of this podcast. But 
setting aside that she's sort of why this podcast exists in the first place, during an interview, Jamie hit on why this focus on women, and I think you should hear it. When you look at women, they are among the fastest growing and most productive entrepreneurs of our time. Before the pandemic, women-owned businesses were generating nearly $1.9 trillion in revenue and employing over 9 million workers. And yet we know that you know, far too many women continue to remain cut off from the capital and the networks that they need to take their companies to the next level. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but recently in PitchBook, they reported that we're on pace to have the lowest VC investment into female-founded companies since 2017. You know, this is largely due to the pandemic, which has had a disproportionate impact on women. Um, so we've got some work ahead of us, and we hope that this podcast can reach a wider audience of people who want to close that funding gap for underrepresented founders. So when we think about women, we just see this tremendous opportunity to change how capital flows. Today, women control a third of the world's wealth. That's amounting to something like $72 trillion. So a lot of power there. Through Project Entrepreneur, we're training female founders to get investment ready, but we know we won't see meaningful change unless we transform you know, the other side of the equation. And I guess the one thing that I'll sort of end with is just our belief in that investing in women you know, sparks economic growth. It leads to more equitable work environments and builds the type of generational wealth that we think can drive real lasting and sustainable change. Right. Financial services firms make investments where they project there to be meaningful returns through Jamie's lens of social responsibility or a private market investor, the idea here is getting more women in investing and entrepreneurship fulfills both. Okay, let's get into Paige's discussion with Amy and Jenny and learn how to tackle this problem. Right, let's drop into that conversation. Amy said that she spent her college years as a volleyball player at the University of Virginia, and her love of sports actually influenced her to become involved in investing. Here she is explaining how those two things are related. As someone who was for many years sitting on nonprofit boards and um, had a lot of kids in a short period of time, I was frankly giving money to people to help them make a difference in the lives of others. And then I realized that with my background as a team sports athlete, I really had the opportunity to put money to work upstream. And, you know, by believing in early stage founders who are building products and services that would hopefully change lives so that they could then help others change lives. I was actually the CEO of a tech company. I learned two interesting things from that experience that led me to start a venture capital fund. One was that I was often the only female on a given stage or in a given room. And my own mom had done venture investing in women more than 20 years earlier. And when I looked up the data as a former Stanford data nerd, I realized that the percentage of dollars going to women had actually gone down, not up, since she had invested despite tons of data showing the performance being better. And then the second was that being an impact company didn't hurt my revenue as a business. It actually was helping us. Just to kind of zoom out a little bit, you know, we know that 2020 has been a really hard year for a lot of people in the workforce, but especially women. Um, I read a report late last month that almost a million women have left the workforce in this year so far, and that will likely continue as, you know, kids stay home from school and just like the share of housework continues to go to women. So how do we see long-term effects of this year, women leaving the workforce maybe for a year or two? How do we see that affect just women's wealth for future generations? 
I think since the pandemic has hit, women are really stepping out to have to take care of their children. And once again, we're the ones that are expected to stay home in households where both parents are working, which sets up a dynamic where women aren't getting pay creases, they're not getting promotions. And you know they've already taken a hit once by being out of the conference rooms and on business trips for maternity leave. And now they're stepping away again to be with their children um, as teachers and caregivers. Yes, women have left the workforce. Yes, the wage gap continues. And, and frankly, even worse than the wage gap is the wealth gap. And the fact that women keep such a high percentage of their wealth in cash and that that's a real problem in terms of long-term wealth, given how much longer women live. And in terms of venture capital, the first half of 2020 actually saw a 22% year-over-year decrease in the percentage of venture capital dollars going to female-founded companies. So, so astounding numbers at every part of the ecosystem. The reason I'm actually pretty hopeful is I think that one of the things that's been holding women back for so long is the lack of flexibility in our workforce. And I think that the pandemic has taught a lot of people who didn't have really an incentive to want to learn to use Zoom, to want to learn to work in other ways, that actually it can be more efficient. You know, by 2030, women are going to control about two-thirds of wealth in this country. And women controlling wealth is a very good thing because women like to invest in impact and diversity and all sorts of things. And that has downstream effects. I actually think in the end, we might end up with a a really sad downward trend, uh, but then some real upward momentum. I'd be remiss to not bring kind of racial equity into this conversation. We know that lower wage workers are the ones who are truly hurting the most in this pandemic. And as kind of impact investors or people who kind of get to control or make decisions about female entrepreneurs, how do you have that conversation about racial equity? How do you bring it into your investing? Yeah, I mean, at Rethink Impact, you know, we're on our second fund and we really built our funds on the thesis that there is tremendous financial and impact opportunity to use private sector capital to invest, to drive sort of positive, inclusive change. And some of that is at the who we're investing in, the entrepreneurs, and really believing that more diverse teams, all kinds of diversity drives better returns. And so our belief is so much of what's needed right now and so much of what this pandemic has sort of brought to bear um, really can be solved by investing in underrepresented entrepreneurs who are seeing problems in their own communities that we may have missed, and that these represent large market opportunities and therefore big opportunities for the private sector. I totally agree with Jenny. I mean, I think for us to G9, we have to decide as investors what we want our mandate to be to make a point to change the status quo by investing in founders who have different backgrounds than we do and that live in geographically different places and to search for people who are underrepresented with good ideas and strong leadership skills. I mean, basically, we have to look at ourselves and say, this is an outward reflection of how we see the world and look for patterns and and look for patterns in the way that we've invested and then do something totally different. Yeah. So both of you kind of invest in programs that support women's wealth and entrepreneurship. Um, what are some of the most interesting trends that you're seeing right now or interesting companies that, that you've seen lately that have really piqued your interest? Companies that I invested in that I really believe in um, that have helped women, Chief, The Riveter, The Wing, I Fund Women, these are all you know, companies that were helping women in business and um, giving, whether it was giving them spaces to work or you know, helping with uh, C-suite level women who are trying to rise to the next level. But I think, um, you know, right now I recently invested in a company called Real, which is a mental health app, which is for group therapy and it's for women. And, you know, right now in the pandemic, it makes me feel really good that I'm a part of something that's actually helping someone. And um, it's done great. It's been really exciting to watch it launch. Yeah. You know, 
for us, the pandemic hasn't really changed our focus or thesis from investing. You know, businesses we'd invest in very much, we're tackling some of the challenges that we're seeing right now. So it's actually helped some of them grow. Mental health is a great example. We have a company, Spring Health, that has employers allow their employees to get it. It's one of the the highest cost issues for employers is mental health issues. And obviously COVID has only exacerbated that. We are certainly looking even more into tools for children and remote working. But some of those things that we think aren't going to go away, we think families have now seen the lens into their kids' learning that they never anticipated. And so there are a lot of interesting moments around equity that sort of tie to that. And so we feel like these issues, workplace flexibility businesses, businesses tackling problems like student debt, that 44 million Americans, you know, there's so many problems that, you know, are ripe to be solved and great entrepreneurs leading companies to solve them. We actually have a question from the audience. I've considered investing in startups, but it's incredibly risky and unlike stock, true. There's a less public information surrounding how to kind of become involved as, as an investor. So how do I gain the information and confidence to make an intelligent decision, particularly when I know, despite negotiating, that I almost certainly make less than my male counterparts as a single woman? It is hard to invest in direct companies, and and it is a highly risky thing. It's why people go either through funds or through other vehicles to de-risk by having a high volume, because you know many 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 startups fail. So so I think that the lesson out of this is, and everyone should turn around and go invest in startups. I think the lesson is everyone needs to understand their wealth, understand the opportunity. And understand, you know, if there are things they want to do to either take negative things out of their portfolio or have an impact, you can do that in all different kinds of vehicles and should have the confidence to do that. I agree. Let me also plug for Jenny, because I think that, you know, there's so many great resources out there. But again, before you go and invest directly into a startup, before you understand how that ecosystem works, I mean, there's so many great funds like Jenny's, like Rethink Impact Fund, built by girls, run by Nisha Dua and Susan Line in New York, who are, are not only running a fund, but they're really trying to change that ecosystem and bring women along for the ride um, to change culture. So I would say, again, you know, if you can get comfortable in a fund and learn through co-investment through a fund or just by being directly involved in a fund, go for it. And then you can take a little bit more risk if you find, you know, if there's someone that you know that you really believe in as a leader who's starting a women only, you know, women founded business and you believe in the mission and the founder and you know it's very risky, but you think you can add value to that company, then then go for it. What were each of your individual paths to kind of jumping into BC? I know you said that your mom was involved at one point and so you kind of were able to see it in action, but what resources do you start with? Who do you talk to to kind of decide if you're ready to do that? So I had done Stanford undergrad and nothing related to investing uh, and done a master's at a Fulbright in human genomics, worked at BCG as a consultant, and after business school, ended up doing various entrepreneurial things and then realized sort of came in almost backdoor through that into the investing world. So I guess to me, the lesson is there isn't one path into investing. And it's really about figuring out, do you have some value to add? that you think will make a difference? And what role do you want to be in? Mine very different than Jenny's too, in that I had been in marketing. I worked at Working Mother Ms. and uh, Gloria Steins Magazine at the time, and then went to work at Sports Illustrated in marketing and realized that I actually loved products. I loved putting people together. I loved being on the connection side. I loved being able to hopefully make a difference on a team. And so that's where I then started directly investing in uh, people, friends of mine who were starting companies and it sort of led down the path of, look, I'm either going to do this full time because I really believe in it, or I'm not, I'm going to stop side investing. Have you guys found more women starting their direct business investing via writing 
direct checks or by joining an angel network and kind of becoming an LP with a fund or something like that? I would say it depends on how well you know the person that's starting the, the direct, you know, the company, because I think you have to really if have that be your first investment. You have to either really be OK with it's going it's going to fail and enjoy the ride that you're going to learn in that process as they're building their company. And if you can add value, then hopefully they succeed and get funding for the next rounds. Or I think joining an angel network is a really good idea if you want to learn the process. And I think you have to think about know your own risk profile, right? Know what stage is right for you. I think traditionally there was sort of an old boys network around this later stage deals and women were sort of relegated to just doing this early, early super startup sort of angel groups and otherwise. And while those are in critical port, sort of part of the ecosystem, I think it's really important to know what part of the system is right for you, right? Do you want high risk, high return of super early investing? Do you want to de-risk that to going towards where Mary and some others, you know, that Amy talked about? So really knowing where you want to be on that spectrum and then figuring how to get there. Got it. I guess other than directly investing, what are some ways that mid-career or kind of more advanced career women do to kind of explore the idea of business investing? Is there a way to kind of be involved without actually writing checks? Yeah, I think there are a lot of things. There are, you know, incubators and accelerators in almost every city now that you can get involved in as a mentor. I think if you have a skill set, you're an accountant, you are a lawyer, and you want to use something you have real comfort in and knowledge in to advise or mentor people, joining one of those groups as a volunteer is a great way to get into the startup ecosystem, learn a lot while also contributing your own expertise. To add to what Jenny said too, and just finding what your expertise is, I would also just say that listen, I love to listen to the podcast, the Guy Raz podcast, um, How I Built This, or Poppy Harlow's Boss Files, because they really teach you about different leaders and different styles. And so you can type, start to see what kind of companies you want to be involved in and, and how you might be able to add value to different companies. Uh, calling back to kind of speaking of these millennial women and just kind of where, where they stand with wealth right now. And that idea that maybe they're not quite comfortable yet kind of taking control of the household finances if they're there with their, their partner. Do you think that just starting by saying, I want to kind of learn, I want to be involved is a good step? You know, what is the baseline? Where should women start when they want to start thinking about their personal wealth, even before we get to maybe investing someday, something like that, but just simply getting control of their personal wealth? Maybe they have very little knowledge about it. Where do you start? I think it depends, you know, on who you are and how much wealth for some people, their paycheck is their wealth. And so, it, you know, it's just even understanding what you're doing and what your costs are in retirement, everything else. For some people, obviously, it's more complicated. It might be a conversation with family or, or with others. I'm always a big believer of start with the data, understand the numbers, understand your personal numbers, but also understand the industry, right? Just so you can at least be making decisions. I mean, like you said, if you can't understand your own paycheck or your own personal finances, then I think it would be really hard to step out of your comfort zone to say, I want to make a big investment in something and not even understanding what you have to invest. So I think, um, I think really just understanding your own personal finances. How feasible is it to kind of start with a small investment? And what is a small investment kind of considered? I know we have small, medium, large. It's different when you're investing your own wealth versus investing money in a company. But what's a good start um, if you want to make a small investment with your own personal wealth to kind of get that started not having all of your portfolio in your, in cash, like you said. I mean, you could have a friend who's starting a bakery that needs, you know, $500 to help get her bakery off the ground. And if that feels good to you because you feel like you're part of it and you know you can live without that $500 because you can, you know, keep it in a jar and not go to Starbucks for a couple months, then that's, that's a start, right? 
Yeah, that's a great answer. I think it's hard when we write about companies getting a $50 million investment to understand what like the first step could be of just kind of investing in yourself, essentially. How do you balance that impact kind of oriented investing versus thinking about just financial gain? Because for a lot of people, that's the goal. That's the goal is to make their money back plus plus a lot. There are certainly impact investments that are quasi-philanthropic and where there's a trade-off. You know, at least for us at Rethink Impact, you know, we might look at a thousand companies a year and we'll pick four of them, let's say, to invest in. And we are only looking at companies where the more impact they have, the more money they make. Uh, and the more money they make, the more impact they have. And we're really looking for businesses where impact not only doesn't hurt your financial return, but if anything, it helps it for all sorts of reasons. It, it drives the business engine. It attracts better talent. So that's what we're focused on. That doesn't mean that all impact investing doesn't have a trade-off. Well said. What can we do to address this gender and racial equity in wealth going forward and teaching those lessons to like the next generation of women who will be kind of tackling wealth? If I can even get my kids to understand the value of pizza, there's an economic theory called the pizza principle and that the price of a pizza will always be equal to a subway fare. Um, I don't know if you know this. Um, if you know the pizza principle, you know that the price of pizza changes you know, based on the cost of living. And so for me, I think the, the advice I could say is little steps, you know, education, and then through education, you have confidence. And so education and confidence are, are key. I think it's really important as you go and begin your investing, know that there is a massive gap between where capital is going and where opportunity sits. And I think that someone's going to take advantage of that. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind as you sort of embark on this career and, and moment as both a personal investor or a, a business investor. What stood out from the conversation you had overall? I think it's important to just normalize these conversations by bringing them up in the first place. I think too often women think of money and building wealth as this taboo subject. And, you know, I heard Amy and Jenny both talking about how they even bring up money and wealth with their young kids at home. They talked about a few different ways that the idea of building wealth could be introduced at an early age, whether it's in school or by their peers. School seems important because it can get into new families, because otherwise we, we are doing uh, boomers help the millennials and the millennials are helping the Zoomers. So it's like a generational handoff. Are, are you optimistic this gets us to something like proportional representation in our investor class? I think that that's a lot to ask of where we are right now. You know, we know that women VCs and women founders are underrepresented in business, but having these conversations can't do anything but help. Yeah, I mean, it's worth making clear we are seeing remarkable growth. In 2004, about 5% of angel investors were women, 11,000 of them. By 2016, more than a quarter of active angel investors were women. That's like 80,000, according to the Center for Venture Research. That is big growth. I think that there's a while to go before we're moving on from conversations about wealth gap that exists between genders and, you know, when we factor race into it, I know that there's a long way to go. For sure. But by introducing this idea to young folks who are just starting to make decisions about their money and spending power, we can aim for a more equitable future. And if we want women-led companies, which we do, then we should also consider that having women investors is a really good way to ensure that that happens. Paige, I love that you're just thinking about the young folks. Thank you for being here. You're welcome, Chris. 
All right, that is it. The eighth episode of the second season of Off the Sidelines, your investor education podcast. Off the Sidelines is sponsored by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. If you love Off the Sidelines, if you like Off the Sidelines, if you've listened to it and sort of are okay with it, subscribe, leave a review. It helps, I promise. Like always, music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to the reporting of Paige Gross and the time from Jenny Abramson and Amy Griffin. This episode was produced by Q9 Creative, including Kevin Schmidlin and Catherine Nails, with post-production by Max Graham. I am Technically CEO Chris Wink. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.